in Leviticus 24. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Leviticus 24. And I am struck again by the intentionality of the Lord, because I wouldn't have put Leviticus 24 where it is. Now, granted, 24 comes between 23 and 25, which works out very nicely, (laughs) but I wouldn't have put this chapter here. And I think you'll see very clearly why. In Leviticus 23, we walked through, over the last couple of teachings, the Moedah, or what the Jews today would call the Moedim, the appointed times of the Lord, the appointed feasts of God. Talked about the four in the spring, Pesach or Passover, which speaks of our redemption. We talked about Hag Hamatzot, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which speaks of the removal of sin, and Reshit, which is the first fruits, the reaping of life or, or resurrection. We looked at Shavuot, Pentecost, receiving the Spirit. And those are all the spring feasts, and I keep going over those because I think they're Really important to see, again, the intentionality of God as he planned all of this out ahead of time. But then the fall feast, Yom Teruah, speaking of the day of the trumpet, the the rapture of the church, and Yom Kippur, which speaks of repentance and reflection and even affliction. And then Sukkot was what we looked at in depth on Sunday. Sukkot, that time of rejoicing. Remember camp, Camp Kingdom, the great camp out that we will experience annually in the coming millennial kingdom. So rejoicing. Now, if you skip chapter 24 and you go right into chapter 25, suddenly it it continues on. Two more, what we could call appointments of God, the Shemitah, which is the Sabbath year. Every seventh year was a year off. I like that pattern. Why don't we do that? Every seventh year, you take the year. Just go on vacation for a year. And this was God's design for his people Israel, the Shemitah. And then, also in chapter 25, continuing on with this joy, is the Yovel, which is the year of Jubilee. Every 50th year, they would count off 49 years, and in the 50th year, everything would be released. All debts released, all slaves released, everything goes back to normal. And so with the Shemitah and with the Yovel, you've got rest and release in Leviticus 25. Now, I think that follows really well. Leviticus 23, redemption, removal of sin, resurrection, receiving the Spirit, rapture, repentance, rejoicing. And then Leviticus 25, rest and release. It's perfect. But God stuck Leviticus 24 right in the middle and messed the whole thing up. Leviticus 23 and 25, oh, it just sounds like Jesus to me. It's all good. And it's all about that time of Rejoicing that leads into rest and release. But Leviticus 24, I will tell you ahead of time, it feels a little bit like blunt force trauma. Like you just get, it just, why here, Lord? The first part of it, okay, is all right, but the last part of it is just a blow to the head, and I think it's because of what's taking place, that there is some chronology here as God is teaching the people of Israel and speaking to Moses and telling them to speak him to speak to the people of Israel, there are still things going on. And this is, I think, why 24 may be here. But it's an abrupt halt in, in this glorious discussion of these appointments of God. It's like a, a stop you dead in your tracks pause for something that takes place and for some more teaching. And because of that, some scholars actually do wonder if it's not out of place. 
Maybe over the years it got moved from somewhere else in Leviticus that it actually belonged somewhere else in, in Torah. I, I don't think so. Honestly, the more I think about it, the more I believe that it is right where it's supposed to be. That is Leviticus 24. In Deuteronomy 16, Moses reviews all the feasts once again. And he says this, listen to it. Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, three times in a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, which would be Jerusalem, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's one of the pilgrimage feasts. And that would include Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and Reshit. All three happen right in that same week. And then he says, I want you to come back for the Feast of Weeks. That's Shavuot or Pentecost, 50 days later. And then round the corner in the fall, they all had to come back for the Feast of Booths that we talked about Sunday, Sukkot. And they shall, listen, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he's able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. And so in between Leviticus 23, all the rejoicing of the appointments, and then Leviticus 25, the rest and the release that is spoken of there, that we'll look at on Sunday, Lord willing, in between the two is responsibility. Responsibility. Responsibility means a response. You know, your responsibility is, is you responding to either something you were told to do or required to do or you feel compelled to do, but it's a response. And so we're going to note three priestly responses tonight. Three responses, and I'll just tell you ahead of time, they have to do with the light, they have to do with the bread, and they have to do with the name. The light, the bread, and the name. And that'll sum up the whole chapter. It's actually a pretty simple chapter. It's just a little jarring. So let's check it out. Verse 1 of Leviticus 24. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the sons of Israel that they bring to you clear oil from beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually outside the veil of testimony in the tent of meeting, that is in the tabernacle. This will be in the holy place of the tabernacle. Aaron shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. He shall keep the lamps in order on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. You know the lampstand, the golden menorah. Seven lamps on that golden menorah that stood in the holy place on the south side of the holy place. Bible students remember that, and we've talked a lot about the lampstand, the beautiful stand of pure hammered gold. There was nothing inside. It wasn't like the table of showbread or even the altar of incense that were made of the, of the wood of shatim. It actually was just pure gold. And that lampstand was hammered and, and formed together and had seven lamps on top of it, and those were to continue burning constantly. What did the lampstand represent, Bible students? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, right? More specifically, the Spirit of Christ, which is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit belonging to Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of God. All the same Spirit, the Helper, the Comforter, the Parakletos. This is the Spirit of the Lord. And Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, which I've quoted so many times because I love these two verses says that a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. That's Jesus. 
And it goes on to say, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And in that we have the lampstand, the spirit of the Lord, that central shaft. And then the spirit, again, of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, seven lamps that represent the Holy Spirit. Now, listen, you can't buy salvation. You can't purchase redemption, removal of sin, resurrection, receiving the Holy Spirit. These are all things that Jesus does. You cannot earn the promise of the rapture and the rejoicing that comes with it. You don't work for the rest and the release that will come in the kingdom. All we can do is respond to such grace. We just respond. You realize our entire spiritual life is a life of response. We flip it upside down sometimes in Christianity, in the church. We say, no, we got to work for it. No, you don't, because you can't. You cannot earn the grace. That's why it's called grace. It's freely given, blood-bought by Jesus, paid for by him. All we can do is respond in our lives to the grace that he's given us, to the salvation that we have, and to all these good things that the appointments of God represent. So how do we do that? How do we respond? And number one, we respond by keeping the lamps lit. Note this, keep the lamps lit. Keep the lamps lit. Now, if the lamp or the lampstand portrays the Holy Spirit, how do I keep the lamps lit? Note this in verse 2 again. He says, command the sons of Israel that they bring to you clear oil. So the sons of Israel, the children of Israel are involved here. They have a part to play. They were to bring the oil to the priests who then would put it into the lamps to keep the lampstand burning. They brought the oil. So how do we do that? How do we bring the oil, as it were? How do we invite the Spirit? Very simply, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Prayer invites the Spirit. Now, this is very simple. Like I said, some of the stuff that we're going to talk about tonight is basic. I mean, this is Christianity 101, and yet it gets very intense as we go. Keep the lamps lit. Pray without ceasing. Paul said in Ephesians 6, 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Bring the oil to keep the lamp lit. Pray in the Spirit. Jude 20, you beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. And so we can look at prayer as, a, as pictured in the oil that lights the lamps, keeps the lamps burning, keeps the lamps lit. And you might say, I know oil is a picture of the Spirit, but in this case, the people are the ones bringing it. And there's such a cool dynamic when we pray, because honestly, when we pray, it, 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 you could say it's the Spirit praying through you. The, the Lord giving you words to pray to the Lord. When we, even when we pray, we're not working works. We're still, re, we're just responding. God does and we respond and his spirit is moving in us and giving us things to pray. I love the prayer and I learned this one from Les. Lord, give me things to pray that you want to respond to or, or give me prayers that you can answer. I always thought that was weird. First time I heard him say that. Lord, give me prayers that you can answer. I'm like, he can answer any prayers. But give me the prayers that you want to hear, Lord. 
And so the oil, the Spirit's now working through me, and I'm bringing the oil to keep the lamp lit. I'm just praying in the Spirit. And I'm praying to the Lord the things that he wants to hear, that he wants prayed. That's the dynamic of prayer. The people are bringing the oil to keep the lamp lit. The lampstand being that picture of the Holy Spirit. Even more intimately, as we'll see in just a second, and you know this, the lampstand is also a picture of, anyone know? The church, the church, the Holy Spirit, yes, absolutely, Isaiah chapter 11, but also the church, and we see that very clearly in the book of Revelation, that the lampstand is, the, so it's the spirit in the church, the oil of the spirit, the light that is burning on the lampstand of the spirit in us and among us, so it's that very amazing dynamic of, of prayer, but there's something else here. And note this also in verse 2, he says that the sons of Israel command them to bring you the clear oil from beaten olives. Listen, olive oil, you buy off the shelf in the store for cooking. Even, even virgin olive oil has probably gone through a refining process. There are a lot of things we buy at Safeway that's been heated up. You know, I don't buy honey from Safeway anymore because it's been heated so hot there's nothing good in it. It's just, it's just you know, gooey sugar. You want good honey... Get the raw stuff that hasn't been heated up. Yeah, but Rick, it has bees' wings in it. Yeah, and they're so chewy. I love that. <laughs> the same thing with olive oil. You can, you can buy olive oil at the store, just plain old olive oil. You can cook with it. It's fine. You can get virgin olive oil, but that kind of olive oil has all been purified by heating. There is a better way to do it, the good stuff. In fact, even on the shelves of the store, if it says extra virgin olive oil, it probably hasn't been heated up at all. It's probably been beaten because that's how you make it. You take the olives and they get crushed and beaten and pressed and squeezed. And, and the, the first release that comes out that is then strained is that's the extra virgin stuff. That's the good olive oil. And so we're to bring prayers that come from a beating. Prayers that come from a beating. What is that? Make you think of, well, in James chapter 5, verse 17, we're told Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So just like you, just like me, Elijah was just a guy, great prophet in Israel, but only great because of the Lord moving and working in his life. He still was just a guy. We were at the house just a, about a half an hour ago. I was talking with, with Michael Adelot. Uh, Michael's been in Ghana for the last six months. It's a, it's a remarkable story, and, and i got to have Michael come and talk to you at some point because it's, just, it's so much fun to see what God has done. Michael went six months ago just to kind of look into the potential of some land that was offered to him to build a school or a children's home or something there. He went back six months ago to look into this. He was going to be gone, I don't know, a month and then come on home. He's been there six months, and the school is half-built. And I, the pictures are amazing. And, and it's so funny because he's sitting here just going, I can't believe the cost of everything. And he's going through and saying, you know, they tell him how much it costs. And he just goes, I just walk away. I just say, no, I'm going to go get a rice ball in town, you know. And it, it's hilarious, but I'm, I'm watching God just move in this young man's life. And he is completely out of control. Michael has zero control of what's going on right now. And I love it because you see God moving. Six months in, he's got half a school built, 
And he's going to go back in April, so he's, he's resting here now. He's home for a short amount of time. By the way, if you want to figure out or if you want to get involved in helping Michael, talk to me or talk to one of our staff because there's a lot that needs to be done. They've got to put a roof on there that's going to cost 36,000 Ghana CDs. Sounds like a lot. Break it down. It's still about six grand. That made Michael feel better when he heard it was only six grand. But, but there's a lot of work to be done. But God is just moving. And, and I'm, I'm pointing that out just to say Elijah was a man just like us. Michael's a guy just like us. But he went because he heard God call. And the Lord has just been moving. And that's what happens when we just trust him. So here comes Elijah, just like you, just like me. And we're told, James chapter 5, verse 17, that he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again. And the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. Now, lest you think that Elijah's life was just a cakewalk. Elijah didn't just bring oil. He brought beaten oil. And what I mean by that is some of Elijah's most fruitful praying was under great duress. When Elijah was under pressure... When he was, as it were, taking a spiritual beating and he prayed and trusted the Lord, the Lord moved, the lamp lit up. He stretched out three times over the body of a dead boy to pray him back to life. 1 Kings chapter 17. He doubled over a man in the birthing position, praying again for the rain, 1 Kings 18.42. Just praying and focused and straining at that time. And Elijah even prayed in suicidal despair, holed up in a cave on Mount Horeb, 1 Kings 19. Every time we see Elijah praying, he's not kicking back his feet up in his slippers, sipping a tea and talking to the Lord. He is under duress. He is under pressure. And Elijah prayed even when he seemed beaten. Even when it seemed there was no way. When he began to pray for rain, do you remember the story that he prayed and he sent his servant outside to look and his servant goes, no, the sky is clear. So he doubles down and he prays again. Go look. Servant goes, eh, something about the size of a man's hand out there on the horizon. Elijah prays again and the rains came. Prayer under duress is like pure beaten olive oil. It produces the purest trust. When you're struggling and you pray in faith and you pray in trust, that's pure prayer, man. That'll bring the power of the Spirit like nothing else will. That doesn't mean you don't pray when it's easy. doesn't mean we don't pray when life is good and we're thankful and we're just praising God and it's all good and, and, and well with us. But what it means is when life is hard, And when you're struggling and when you're beaten down and when you're under duress, pray because that produces some of the purest work of God. It did with Elijah. It did with Jesus. Psalm 118 verse 5 says, From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. And that very well, that came from the Spirit of Christ, certainly describes Jesus, you know where, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Think about him there. At his most 
difficult time of his entire life. And this is even including the next several hours of going through the unjust trials and the beatings and all that toward the cross. Hey, that was painful. That was worse in terms of the beatings. But it was the garden that was the most difficult for Jesus. That was the place where his entire insides were turned inside out, where he was in the most anxiety and pain and anguish was in the garden. Luke twenty two forty one. 41, he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him, Luke says, strengthening him. But it says in Luke twenty two forty four, 44, being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. How many of you have prayed yourself bloody? I mean, prayed so fervently and with such anguish and such stress on you that your capillaries expand and burst next to your skin and blood starts to pour down your face with sweat. It's called hematidrosis, an actual medical condition. And typically when that happens, you die. And that was Jesus in the garden. In Aramaic, Gethsemane is Godsmene. Godsmene, and it simply means oil press. This was the place where Jesus was pressed. And out of the pressing came the pure work, the pure olive oil. Our Lord endured the greatest beaten pressure of his life in that place, and he prayed through the pressure. So when you are under pressure is the time to pray. Sometimes we think, ah, I don't want to pray right now because it seems like I only prayed to God when things aren't good. That's, that's great. You should pray to God when things aren't good. That's the time to pray to him. That's the time when trust is truly tested. When you're struggling, you're hurting, you're striving, and things aren't going well, man, that's when you pray. Is anyone among you suffering? James 5, 13 says, then he must pray. We think I should only pray when it's all going well. No, pray when you're suffering. And don't feel bad about it. We've been commanded to. And that beaten prayer, boy, that, that brings the sweet olive oil. That, that's what the Hebrew pastor said, Hebrews 5, 17, talking again about Jesus. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. And that word piety, by the way, means it's a combination of reverence and dread. Jesus was in a place of dread and yet holding out holy reverence to the Lord. And in that, his prayers were pure. So if you feel beaten, even when you feel beaten, keep the lamps lit. Keep the lamps lit. You keep praying. Speaking of Jesus, uh, prayer lights the lamps, but there's something else involved here that helps keep the lamp lit, and that is a love of Jesus. So praying to the Lord, but also a love of the Lord will maintain the lamps. What do you mean? First, uh, uh, Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus says, speaking to Ephesus, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove what? Your lampstand. I'm going to take your lampstand from you unless you repent. You want to maintain the lampstand? You love the Lord. Want to keep the lamps burning? You pray in the Spirit even under duress. Love Jesus. Pray in the Spirit. You'll keep the lamps lit. 
Verse 5. Then you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. By the way, that's like four and a half pounds. This is, this is heavy cake, all right? And you shall set them in two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. So now we move from the south side of the tabernacle immediately in the holy, the holy place, immediately to the other side, and here's the table of showbread. And at the table of showbread, they stack up the bread on top of it, two rows of fresh bread set out every Shabbat, every Sabbath day, set out on the table of showbread in stacks, stacked up. It's the only way you could fit that much bread, bread of that size, on such a small little table is in, is in two stacks. And you might notice it says, you shall put it in two rows, but the, rows, the word rows there is mar arakot, and it translates stacks, a couple of stacks or, or heaps. And in fact, if, if you think back, the phrase showbread is literally ma'arakot lechem, so stacked bread. That's the showbread. Later variations of this golden table had the table itself and then had these interesting golden stands that would stand in front of it and over it, and on those stands would be shelves, and they would just put the bread on the shelves so they could take it off and put it on very simply and very easily for the stacks of bread. Well, verse 7 then says, you shall put pure frankincense on each row that it may be a memorial portion for the bread, even an offering by fire to the Lord. And I always wondered this, maybe you did too. Wait, I'm putting frankincense on the bread? I'm squirting aftershave lotion on my, on my sandwich? What, what, what's this? That's a little strange. I'm supposed to eat frankincense? No, you don't, you don't eat it. Notice the next verse. It says, every Shabbat he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. It is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. It shall be for Aaron and his sons. They shall eat it in a holy place. It is most holy to him from the Lord's offerings by fire, his portion forever. So here's how it works. The bread wasn't burned in the fire. It was eaten. And the frankincense wasn't eaten. It was burned in the fire. So they would set out the showbread, stack it up, and they would put the frankincense in little cups or little bowls on top of each loaf of bread. And then from there, they would take that frankincense and it would be offered at the altar of incense as the priest offered up prayer. That's the memorial portion to the Lord. So the incense takes the place of the bread. The bread is an offering to the Lord, but rather than burning the bread, they would burn the incense and the priest would take the bread and eat it. And it says, in a holy place. How do we respond? Well, we keep the lamps lit. Secondly, keep the bread on the table. Keep the bread on the table. Now, as simply and as obviously as the oil is the, the prayer to the spirit of the Lord and beaten olive oil, the prayer even under duress. So we come to the bread on the table. And you know what this means? Jesus said he compared our daily bread to every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The word of God, the bread. But he also called himself the bread that came down from heaven. So the bread is the word, but the bread is Jesus who is the word. And we keep the bread on the table. And the ma'arakot lachem, this stacked bread or the show bread, was for the priest to eat. Note this, it says, in a holy place. The priest shall take it and eat it in a holy, not in the holy place. He didn't have to eat it right there in the holy place, but in 
a holy place. That isn't a place that is set aside and special and intentional. Royal priesthood, do you have a holy place to eat the bread? The bread that we keep out on the table, do you have a special place where you keep the word of Christ on the table? I'm not talking about a shelf or a, or a, a you know, glass cabinet to stick your Bible in. The Bible says, Psalm 119.11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. A special place, so an intentional place to, to keep the word. And you keep the word in, in your heart. That's keeping the bread on the table. So put these two things together. We keep the lamps lit, praying in the spirit, to the spirit, by the spirit, even under duress. We keep the bread on the table. That is, we feed on the word of God. We continually treasure his word in our hearts. And then all the way over in Acts chapter 6, we see a situation take place where Peter puts it together for us. And I love this story. I'll just read it to you, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. So the Greek Jews versus the, the uh, natural born or the, the normal Hebrews. Because their widows, that is the Hellenistic or the Greek Jewish widows, were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. A couple of things you recognize right there. Hey, they had a daily serving of food. That's pretty cool. The church already has a meals ministry underway by Acts chapter 6. And all of the widows were being fed. The problem was the pure Hebrew women widows were being fed first. And if they ran out, oh, I'm sorry, you're a Greek, you don't get it. We don't have enough. Or they're being overlooked. And it, it wasn't being handled well. So the very, one of the very first ministries in the church begins to break down because of the people involved. That never happens here. So the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now, <laughs> you read that, you think, what? That sounds a little arrogant. We need someone else to set up the tables and chairs. Because we're over here doing Bible study. But the reality is that the apostles knew what their role was. They understood the value of the word of God and the significance of it. And so they said, therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Notice that. It's amazing. For the task of distributing the food to the widows, we need some really special people. We need some people who are spirit-filled, who are wise, and who will handle this ministry well. But then Peter says, and note this, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You see it? Keeping the lamps lit and keeping the bread on the table. Prayer and the ministry of the word. And, and the whole context here of prayer and the ministry of the word is in a conflict over food. So food is at issue, but Peter wisely understood what Job says. Job 23, 12, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Peter's saying we have to be about prayer and the ministry of the word. We can't be about the necessary food even to the widows. So we need this taken care of by some wise and spirit-filled men. But we, we have got to stay focused on keeping the lamps lit and keeping the bread on the table. Prayer and the ministry of the word. 
And Peter understood this as well. It wasn't just for them. It wasn't so the apostles could hole up in the ivory tower and just enjoy their small group and Bible study. It was for everybody. It was for the church who would need the light and the sustenance of God. So they would keep the lamps lit in prayer for the whole fellowship and for all the people. And they would keep the bread on the table by obtaining or, or, or producing the ministry of the word because they were in the word. What happens when these things fall into neglect? When we don't keep the lamps lit and we forget to put the bread out on the table? What happens to a church when prayer and the word diminish? And the Lord is no longer really the focus because we have too much else going on. Verse 10 of Leviticus 24. Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the sons of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel struggled with each other in the camp. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. Now his mother's name was Shalomith, the daughter of Debris of the tribe of Dan. So they put him in custody so the command of the Lord might be made clear to them. Note this, it's so important in verses 11 and 16. We find the only places in the entire Hebrew Bible that singularly use the phrase Hashem. Hashem, the name. Now today it is very common among Jewish people to refer to God as Hashem. But as far as the Hebrew scriptures go, it is only here in Leviticus 24 where that phrase is used, Hashem, the name. That is without a preposition, so it's not the name of the Lord, and it's without a possessive pronoun. It's not your name or his name. It's just the name, the name. Now again, Jewish people today will refer to God as Hashem or Adonai. They will never, practicing Jews will never refer to the Lord as Yahweh, or Jehovah, or Yav, or any combination of understanding of what we call the tetragrammaton, that, that Y-H-W-H, Exodus 3, I think it's right around verse 11 where God says, I am that I am, it's Yahweh. It's the Y-H-W-H, and that's the tetragrammaton. And every time we see Lord, in fact, right there in verse 12, where it says they put this boy in custody so the command of the Lord might be made clear to them, Lord is Yahweh in the Hebrew Scriptures. So it's all over the Hebrew Scriptures, but it, will not, it is not pronounced by the Jewish people out of deep respect for Hashem, for the name of God. Many Jewish people won't even write out God as in G-O-D. They'll write g dash. D in their writing, just to show, again, respect and awe. Some of this comes from the rabbis over time, as in the Mishnah, Sanhedrin, chapter 10, verse 1, which says, the one who utters the divine name as it is spelled, Y-H-W-H, will not have a place in the world to come. I read that and I got a little shudder down my spine because I say Yahweh all the time. And I'm probably mispronouncing it. I mean, we don't know the exact pronunciation because it's been so long since anyone has ever tried to pronounce the I am. And so some in the church will say Jehovah and some will say Yahweh. And like I said, some commentators even, I think it's Kyle and Delich, they'll say Yav. So we don't know the exact 
correct pronunciation, but practicing and, and Orthodox Jews will say, don't even say the name. Don't even say it. Now, personal opinion, I don't think God gave us a name to be avoided. I think he gave us the name to be spoken. He shared his name with Moses. Moses said, who, who do I say is sending me? When the children of Israel ask, who do I say? I am. You tell them I am is sent. You tell them YHWH is sending you. So Moses heard it. Moses would have repeated it. And throughout the Hebrew scriptures, that is the name that they spoke when they spoke of God. So I think he gave us the name on, on purpose. But here's the thing. Right here in this situation, the name has been severely abused. The reverence, the awe, the respect that should come with the name of God are completely absent here. And we're told that this young son of the Israelite woman, that he blasphemed the name. That is, Yaqob Hashem. Yaqob, to slander. Literally, slander or blasphemy in the Hebrew scriptures, it, it means to pierce through someone, which is interesting. Because honestly, the crucifixion of Jesus was a blasphemous thing. To pierce through someone, to, to cut into their character. Yacob, that's blasphemy. It says also that he cursed. So it's, it's a combination here of blaspheming the name. How did he do so? By cursing. That is Yacolel, which means to disdain or make light of. You need to get the picture here because what's about to happen is what I called blunt force trauma. It's shocking and surprising. And some might say or think, wow, this is just this punishment is way over the top. But the reality is we need to understand that this young man, though we don't know exactly what he said, it wasn't just some offhand remark and he didn't just curse. He didn't just take the name of God in vain like we would think in our culture. He cursed the name with disdain. He cursed Hashem, the name. And, and it's so interesting here the way it's written and the way Moses writes this in Leviticus 24 because it really, it, it highlights the name. Like I said, nowhere else in the Hebrew scriptures says it this way, Hashem. Moses does here to make it absolutely clear, this name was violated. The name of God was abused. He blasphemed. Keep that in mind and turn in your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 12. If you got your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 12 because this issue of blasphemy is too important to skim over. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is in the midst of his teaching and the Pharisees have just come after him and note this, I'll start in verse 22, but you can continue turning there and catch up. It says, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. And the crowds were amazed, and all were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Implication, Messiah. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. This is a satanic thing. Pharisees were saying I love this knowing their thoughts Jesus said to them any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and any city or house divided against itself will not stand if Satan casts out Satan he's divided against himself how then will his kingdom stand 
He's made a great argument. That's foolish to say that I'm casting out demons by Satan. Why would Satan cast out Satan? That makes no sense. He says, if I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? <laughs> For this reason, they will be your judges. That's a profound statement. The demons are going to judge the Pharisees. Verse 28, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? I love that. Jesus is saying, that's what's going on here. I'm binding the strong man. I'm casting out demons. I am weakening the enemy in this process. And verse 30, watch this. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven, people. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, that is Jesus in his first coming in the flesh, well, it shall be forgiven him. Why? Because they didn't fully understand who he was yet. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. I, I take you to this place because in the midst of this example of this young Israelite who is cursing and blaspheming Hashem, our response to grace, number three, keep the lamps lit, keep the bread on the table. Number three, keep the name holy. Keep the name holy as we Pray in the Spirit as we feed on the bread of his word with love and respect and reverence and fear of the Lord. Keep the name holy. Now, it's interesting to me because this is kind of a hot-button issue for a lot of Christians because this whole idea of blasphemy against the Spirit is called unforgivable. This is the unforgivable sin. You commit this sin, you blaspheme the Holy Spirit of the living God, and you cannot and will not be forgiven. And I've had more people over the years go, Rick, what does that mean? If I say, oh my God, if I, if I speak his name offhandedly, if, if I use it in a curse, if I blaspheme the Holy Spirit, am I going to hell? Is that unforgivable? Understand, it's unforgivable for two reasons. And by the way, the reason why Jesus points this out and pulls this out right here is because the Pharisees are saying he casts out demons by Satan and he's given them a severe warning. You are calling God Satan and that's blasphemy, my friends. And so he says, any word spoken against the Son of Man, that'll be forgiven. So the Pharisees are not in an unforgivable state yet. But he's laying out the warning. If you blaspheme against the one you know to be God, that's unforgivable. And so here, unforgivable, it's unforgivable for two reasons. Two reasons. Number one, because blasphemy against the Holy Spirit disdains the nature of the Holy God. It disdains his nature. It, it treats God taking his name, bandying it about, using it as a curse. It disdains his name because it treats God as something common. As, as a curse-worthy thing. It treats him as a vulgar, coarse creature rather than a holy creator. That's blasphemy. That kind of dull contempt for the very name of God, and by the way, it is rampant in our culture. 
But that kind of dull contempt for God's name induces unbelief in people. I remember the first time I heard Jesus' name used as a curse. I may have shared this years ago. I think we were in the barn. But I was on the log ride at Knott's Berry Farm in Southern California with my brother. I was probably 10, 11 years old. And we're going up the hill on the log, and we level out, and then you take off. And the second we took off, there were some older teen guys in the log right with us, just sitting behind us. And one of them just started saying Jesus' name, Jesus Christ. He just kept screaming it over. You know. And I was, I was sitting there going, oh, I, I, it just, it's the first time I'd heard anyone do that. I'd heard people say, oh, my God. And, and curse in that way. I never heard anyone take the actual name of Jesus and just, psh, and it was, even for a kid, it was so offensive to me. I'm like, what are you, clearly you don't even know who you're talking about. Or you wouldn't, you wouldn't treat him that way. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3, remember what God said? This is right after Nadab and Abihu were burned by fire. By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. Moses would even lose the right to lead the people into the promised land, not for blasphemy. He didn't blaspheme, but he simply misrepresented God. We'll come to that story in Numbers, where God tells him to do something, and, and, and he does something a little different. Changes what he's told to do, because he's angry with the people, and the people think God's angry with them, but God wasn't angry with them. And Moses misrepresents him, and so God says, that's it. You're not going to lead him into the promised land. I will be treated as holy, the Lord says. And he says it over and over. I will be treated as holy. Moses, you're not going to go into the promised land. Why? Numbers chapter 20, verse 12. God says, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Keep the name holy. Keep the lamps lit. Praying in the spirit at all times. Keep the bread on the table. Keep the word fresh in your life. And keep the name holy. Because, note this, while blasphemy disdains the nature of the holy God, even worse, blasphemy is the discharge of a hard heart. That's why it's unforgivable. It's the discharge of a hard heart. As Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 2, those who are seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Think about that. Taking a branding iron to your conscience and you can't even think right versus wrong anymore. You have no sense of good versus evil, of what's pure versus what's vile. And that's the spirit of someone who is beyond repentance. See, that's the thing. If you're to the point where you wouldn't repent anyway, that blasphemy comes out. That's someone who is so hard-hearted, even if God offered forgiveness, they wouldn't take it. They couldn't receive it because the heart is too hard. It's like Paul wrote. I'll just read this to you. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Why? Because, listen, because of the hardness of their heart. 
There are some incredibly intelligent, intellectual, learned people in this world with hard hearts, and they're idiots by God's standard. The most brilliant are absolute fools because the heart is hard. So that's the difference between wisdom and knowledge. You can have all kinds of knowledge and have zero wisdom. Wisdom is that which comes from the Lord by the Spirit to the heart. Paul says, and they having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And then he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. Because Jesus isn't learned by the head. He's learned by the heart. How did you learn Jesus? You fell in love with him. Anyone who's a follower of Jesus knows that it started when I finally gave myself to him, when I finally trusted him and found that joy in my heart. It wasn't because all the evidence stacked up. By the way, all the evidence will stack up. But it's never by evidence that someone's saved. It's never the facts that bring you to the Lord. It's faith. And it's a heart issue. And blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and what I believe we see this young man doing back in Leviticus 24, the reason why it is unforgivable is it, become, it comes from a heart that is so hard it would refuse forgiveness even if it was given. It's beyond forgiveness, beyond repentance. Now, back to the blasphemer and the severity of the situation. Leviticus 24, 13, watch this. Then the Lord, then Yahweh, spoke to Moses saying, Bring the one who has cursed outside the camp and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Then let all the congregation stone him. You shall speak to the sons of Israel saying, if anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall sure, certainly stone him. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. You don't even have to be an Israelite. You can be a foreigner in Israel, and you blaspheme the name of God, and stoning was the punishment. And note this, it didn't come from Moses. This came from God. This was his call. This was his punishment. Now, this was so serious to the Lord that even those who heard the blasphemy needed to be freed from it, and so they had to lay their hands on his head as, as an act of transference, to transfer any guilt or shame or anything that their ears might have heard back to the one who caused the sin in the first place. And so they laid their hands on his head in that show of transference onto him, and then the entire congregation of Israel gathered around and stoned him to death while mama watched. I told you blunt, for, blunt force trauma. This right in the middle of all the celebrations on either side? How? Why is this here? Verse 16, again, is God's judgment and God's sentence that this young man is deserving of death. But before that even happens, then God repeats the distinctions that he has in Torah law regarding what is a capital offense and what are lesser offenses. Verse 17, he says, if a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. So blasphemy is as bad as murder. 
He goes on and says, verse 18, the one who takes the life of an animal shall make it good. That is life for life. So you take the life of a cow, you owe the guy a cow, okay? In the code of Hammurabi, if you killed your neighbor's cow, they could kill you. So capital punishment was far more severe in other codes and, and other laws. God actually begins to introduce grace into the picture. Verse 19, if a man injures his neighbor just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. So it's a, a quid pro quo. You do to your neighbor, then your neighbor does back to you. But again, in the code of Hammurabi, if you do harm to your neighbor, they can kill you. Nice. Nice world. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him, the Lord writes. He says, thus, the one who kills an animal shall make it good, but the one who kills a man shall be put to death. There shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the stranger as well as the neighbor or, or the native, for I am the Lord your God. So God lays out a new pattern that is not it's not capital punishment for whatever. It's, it's a balance of, of recompense. If someone does against you, then they either repay or you can do the same to them. And it was, it, the whole idea was to keep people from doing this to each other. Knowing, okay, if, if I punch him in the arm and bring up a bruise, he gets to do the same to me. So it was, it was a way of saying, don't do these things. And even capital punishment was a way of saying, if you kill someone, your life is forfeit. Just don't do it. But spoken right here, you know what? Jesus didn't nullify that law. Sometimes people think that he did. If you listen to this, and I'll read it to you from Matthew chapter 5, Jesus didn't nullify all the laws of God in Torah, the fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, all of that. He didn't nullify it. He actually took it from the external to the internal. He brought all the external laws of God and he said, Let, let's, let's not lighten that, let's make it more real. Let's bring it right into the heart of his followers. And so he said, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, you've heard it that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. It's right there in the commands. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother at heart will be guilty before the court. And down in verse 27, he says, you heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, because what was happening is the people would take the law and find all kinds of loopholes around it. I didn't commit adultery, I divorced her. I just took care of it that way, you know, so then I could be with who I wanted. Why'd you divorce her? Well, she burned the toast. Oh, okay. He says in verse 33, you again have heard the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but fulfill your vows to the Lord. I say to you, make no oath at all, either by earth or, or by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Don't make an oath. He said, just because it's a hard issue. If you make a promise, you've got to keep that. Verse 38, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. In other words, don't take vengeance. Don't seek recompense. If someone harms you, take it. 
That's completely, radically different because Jesus is getting into the heart. He says, you've heard it was said that you shall love your neighbor, Matthew 5, 43, and hate your enemy. Yeah, I love my neighbor, my enemy, not so much. The thing is, God never said that. He didn't say love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He said love your neighbor. But the people took that and twisted it. Well, okay, I can love my neighbor, but hate that guy. And Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Note that. You may be sons of your Father in heaven. Jesus taught because he understood what we needed to know that the heart affects the mouth and the behavior. So back in the story, back in Leviticus 24, we can have some sense of what's going on here. This is a heart problem. This son of the Israelite woman who is named Shalomit. Shalomit. Her name means peace. Her name is a feminization of Shalom. Shalomit, the Israelite woman. And her son is cursing the Lord. And so verse 23, the end of the chapter says that Moses spoke to the sons of Israel and they brought the one who had cursed outside the camp and they stoned him with stones. Thus the sons of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded Moses. They haven't even left Mount Sinai yet. They have just received the law. This is rough. And again, coming off of Sukkot and the appointed times and celebrations of the Lord, verse chapter 23, and then going into, you know, the Sabbath year and Jubilee, and oh, it's so wonderful, and psh, blunt force trauma. Kid is stoned to death. Why? Why so severe a punishment? And why is it here? Now, the severity we can begin to understand because there's more than just he just spouted off God's name in vain. He's cursing and disdaining. The name. He's blaspheming the name of God. He is, there's something vile going on here. And again, it's not told to us exactly what it was, but it's worthy of the punishment because God is the perfect judge. So we know there's something pretty bad that took place as these two were struggling and this one starts to spout. But listen, why is it here? And why this example at this time? The people are, at this point, not even two years out from Egypt. So remember where they are. They're at Mount Sinai. They have made that three-month journey. They've been at Mount Sinai ever since, receiving the law, receiving Torah. And you can take the people out of Egypt, but it is much more difficult to get Egypt out of the people. And note this, Shalomit. She is the daughter of debris of the tribe of Dan, but she was married to an Egyptian. So this kid's father was an Egyptian. Mama was an Israelite. Father was an Egyptian. And we don't even know anything else about him. Did he remain in Egypt when they all left? Because he refused to go with those, with those Hebrews? Did he perhaps die in the Golden Calf Rebellion? As one opposed to Moses? We don't know because he's not mentioned, but he's not here. At this point, this Israelite boy is simply the son of Shalomit. She's the only one named. If dad was there, he would have been named. So he's out of the picture completely. 
And still his half-Egyptian, half-Israelite son is cursing the God of Israel in the camp, disdaining Yahweh. And by the way, with so many people, it's unlikely he was the only one who was half-Israelite, half-Hebrew. There probably were many others. We know that there was a, a company of people who came out of Egypt with the people of Israel, with the Hebrew children, because they saw what God was doing, and Egyptians that joined them and, and, and came out as well. How do you get Egypt out of the people when there's so much Egypt there? 400 plus years of this cultural influence and of this even obviously marrying in as we see in this example. Proverbs 15, 28 says, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. God isn't just making an example of this poor, sad kid. Now, this, this kid, what he said, this boy, this young man, what he did was vile. Matthew chapter 6, verse 18, Jesus said, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witness and slanders. It's a hard problem. That's where it emanates from. So how do you get Egypt out of you when your offspring is part Egyptian? Spiritually, as well as literally here, something's got to die. Something's got to die. The old has to die in favor of the new. And in this case, the old was rising up in the midst of Israel and had to be put down. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And he's not talking about that you don't talk to someone who doesn't believe in Jesus. If we took it that way, we would never share the gospel with anybody. What he's saying is don't be bound. Don't be united. Don't be brought together as in a marriage. Some of you have experienced this, but I'm telling all of you that one of the worst ways to go into a marriage is to go into a marriage where one spouse doesn't believe in Jesus and one does. You're not going to save the non-believing spouse. It's going to be a problem. More marriages have ended because of that issue. And the pain that we see that Mama Shalomit has to go through. What if she had married a man of Israel rather than an Egyptian? Would we be even in this place and even have the story before us? What harmony is Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, and listen to this, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I, listen, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And this half Egyptian, half Israelite son was cursing and disdaining the same father who had saved him out of pagan Egypt. The father he needed was Yahweh. But rather than awe and respect the name, he cursed and blasphemed and disdained it. So the chapter ends... <laughs> with a very public 
execution. Tragic, but divinely judged. And all we can say is, if you know God to be true and you know God to be perfect and right, and he is, then this was the right judgment. It was the right call. Death by stoning. So public execution, that's how we end. How did the chapter begin? It didn't begin in the public view. In fact, it didn't even begin on the domestic front. It begins in the holy place, right? The lampstand and the table of showbread in that place, away from the public eye, away from the family view. Literally, it begins in the most private, unseen place of the work of a priest. Now, stay with me here. There the lamps of the menorah were to be kept burning. Verses 3 and 4 tell us continually, keep the lamps lit. And there the fresh showbread was to be set out on the table in stacks. Verse 8 tells us continually. So it was always there before the Lord. There was never supposed to be a time in the holy place when it was without one or the other, the light burning or the bread on the table. These were perpetual. These were to remain there in the holy place. And what I'm telling you here is when, where the lamps are lit privately, where the bread is on the table personally, the name will be honored publicly. It starts in here. To keep the lamp lit, to keep the bread fresh in the heart. And that will then affect what comes out publicly. That's the effect of the, of the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word on the heart, the inner life. And we talk so much about impacting the outer life. How can I change my behavior? How can I be more godly? It starts right here. It's in the heart before the Lord. It's in keeping the lamps lit by prayer, even under duress. It's keeping the bread on the table, being in the word of God and hearing in the, the word of God and, and feeding on the word more than our necessary food. If you do that, you will naturally keep the name holy. Now, let me end with this. Anyone still having trouble with the stoning of the boy, the son of Shalomit, mother again, whose name means peace? Think about it. Don't, don't just let it slip off. Think about her watching this happen with a mother's heart. Think about the brutality of it, the wounding and the disfiguring and the marring of stone after stone after stone finally took his life until he's lying a lifeless heap, bloodied and bruised and disfigured by the stoning. If you can see that, then maybe we can sense something of the death of another son who, though innocent, was bombarded and barraged, as it were, by the rocks and the stones of our guilt and sin until he, Isaiah 52, verse 14, was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. And Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross and for this reason also, God highly exalted him and, listen, bestowed on him what? The name. The name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, 
Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, the name, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Before we can get from the rejoicing of Sukkot to the rest and the release of the future days, we first have to learn to love and honor Hashem, the name. Father, we thank you for this, this insert, this chapter, as it were. Um, again, to me, in an, in an odd place, but, but stunning in its placement. And we thank you, Father, for these powerful examples that you gave us in Israel, things that were literal for them, but as, as you tell us, was, is example for us here at the end of the age. Father, will you help us to be continual in our prayer to trust and to rely on you knowing that even in our most beaten down times your spirit is with us cause us lord to cry out to you good days and bad days to keep the lamps lit and father we pray that you will help us to just feed on your word to love your word to the point that we just can't get enough of it because as we talked about, Lord, we recognize these are the things that affect our hearts. These are the things that change us internally and spiritually so that what comes out of our mouth is worship of Hashem, the praise and glory of the name of God, and nothing but respect and awe when we talk about or to you, Lord Jesus, Yeshua, our Savior. We love you, Lord. And it's in your name we pray tonight. Amen.